please rise as you are able for this reading of today's lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Dr. Driver, for reading our text this morning. Uh, we were tickled by the fact that we have an OBGYN reading the text. She's delivered many seeds into the world, and uh, it is a confirmation of this text to have Lynn to read the scripture for us. Uh, Casey and uh, orchestra, musicians and all, we're so grateful. I'm so grateful to Mike Coggins for his leadership. Uh, Mike, it would have taken me half an hour to do what you did in five minutes. And uh, thank you so much. There would be many here who would like you to help me with my sermon to make it a little more succinct. Uh, but we're grateful for your leadership. And if you're a part of the church council, uh, I would just ask that you would stand. If you are a chair of one of our elected positions or church council, would you stand so that we can, can thank you? They've been with us at different times all morning. I often tell my colleagues in ministry that we have two tremendous resources at Brentwood United Methodist Church. The first is the Holy Spirit of God, and the second is the people. And we're so grateful for you and for your generosity, uh, for your discipleship, uh, for the way that you are allowing God to use you to bring transformation in many ways to the world. And Rich Davis, whose service we did yesterday, 93 years of age, Two months ago, he participated as a French horn player in five different Christmas concerts. Apparently, Rich had not heard that discipleship has a retirement plan. It does not. Uh, the part that does, however, the discipleship retirement plan usually involves a eulogy, and that is, the, that is what we shared in yesterday uh, with Rich. Some of you know that I'm a part of a cohort of ministers who are in similar churches to that of Brentwood, and we meet together twice a year for a couple of days, and we've been meeting together for about three years. Uh, these are senior pastors of churches like Peachtree Road in Atlanta, Dunwoody in Atlanta, First Methodist Boise, Idaho, First Methodist Lubbock, Texas, Christ Methodist in, in Louisville, and it's been an incredible experience to be a part of, of sister churches who have the same kinds of hopes, heartbreaks, struggles, and joys that we have. And each time we meet, uh, three weeks ago we met at First Methodist Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, we ate well during that time, I can tell you that. But each time we meet, we have a consultant that comes and, and shares with us some things that, that we think might be helpful uh, to the world in which we're living. And last time, our consultant was named Mark Sampson. Uh, he's a British guy whose gig is to help organizations, uh, businesses, and churches with how to measure impact and effectiveness in mission. Like, how do we assess our faithfulness to God? 
How do we know? How do we actually know that we're really accomplishing the mission and purpose of God, or are we? He said something three weeks ago that was really interesting. He said, I've noticed that CEOs in business and even senior pastors, whenever we talk about measurement, we have a tendency to go immediately to nickels and noses, to money and attendance, and that's important. Stewardship and participation is, is a definitive measure, a definitive gauge of discipleship and, and commitment. I was thinking earlier today that whenever I've received a new member into the church, I always ask them, after the theological questions, I always ask them, will you be faithful to Christ here in this body? Through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. I cannot remember ever a time when the person joining said no, because if they had, we would not have been able to receive them into the family. Fiscal measurement, financial measurement, is pretty simple. It's universal, it's context-free, it's spreadsheets, cash flow, profit loss, and as folks will often say, numbers don't lie. I love the cartoon that I saw recently of a first grader, a six-year-old, standing at the blackboard doing an equation with chalk in hand, looking to his teacher to say, I just feel like two plus two equals five. I just feel that way. Well, that's fuzzy math, and frankly, it doesn't compute. But it's easy, numbers. On the other hand, measuring social and spiritual impact, that's a little bit more difficult. It's complex. It is contextual. It is not a one-size-fits-all. It's more qualitative, actually, than quantitative, and it demands perception. It demands authenticity. It demands some degree of vulnerability, discernment, narrative, and a lot of wisdom. One of the intriguing questions that Mr. Sampson raised of us was this. Is it the task of the church to fill the building or to fill the people? I've been struggling with that question, which leads to another question. How do you know? How do you know if the people are being filled? Because I've discovered that just because the building is full doesn't mean the people are full. And so I'm thinking with you today, I'm asking you, how do you measure that? When I was doing my doctoral degree at SMU in Dallas, I, I used to go to a church called Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, Southwest Dallas. Tony Evans is the senior pastor. I, I remember him making an interesting comment about measuring he said, faith is measured by your feet, not by your feeling. It is measured by what we do, not by what we say we are going to do. Uh, my wife occasionally, she asked me the other day a third time to do something that I had promised to do, and I responded by saying, I'm fixing to do it, which is a southern way of saying it ain't going to happen today. <laughs> How do you measure for years, for years, 
In our consumeristic culture, we have always thought that bigger is better. In fact, I've heard some of you say it, uh, go big or go home. Size matters. Living large. But more often these days, I'm hearing you say, less is more. I told you a few weeks ago about my epiphany word. How many of you have received your epiphany word, star word? Many of you, we gave out, Casey, what did we give? 2,000 star words? And I shared with you my word, it's comfort. And I've been struggling with that word because I'm not sure that what it means is, is God wanting to comfort me or do I need to get out of my comfort zone? My wife got a word, she loves her word. Her word is simplify. And we've been talking about that for about two years. Sherry's at the point now where she's not wanting things. She's wanting to give things. She's wanting to give her time and give her things to family and to others. We're in that stage of life, stewardship stage, where we're thinking more about that. In fact, she's not in the choir today because she is with grandson number two, who is two months old. I have a picture of Ben. Uh, you see what I did there? I kind of wove it into the sermon. <laughs> I talked to Ben's dad, who's my son this morning. He was up all night with Ben, and he's sleeping through his sermon today in Noonan, Georgia. We are obsessed with measuring ourselves. Metrics, statistical projections, quantifiable outcomes... And numbers are critical. Numbers are important because money represents mission. Money represents ministry. But I noticed when I read this sec this morning, this Matthew 13, that Jesus has a different standard of measurement. For Jesus, it's not just about outcome. It's about input. For Jesus, it's not just about production. It's about process. For Jesus, it's never just about destination. It's about journey. It's not just about fruit. It's about seeds. And Jesus talks a lot about seeds. In fact, if you read Matthew 13, if you read the whole chapter, it's all a bunch of stories. It's all parables. These are word pictures in which Jesus is using kind of agricultural kinds of images to help teach his disciples about the kingdom. And one of those little parables, the parable of the mustard seed, it's in all three synoptic gospels, so it's really important. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. In the first century, the mustard seed was thought to be the tiniest of all seeds. In fact, were you to try to measure it, it would measure about one to two millimeters in size. And you know how much it weighs? Here's how much it weighs. I'm sorry, y'all, but I can't even pronounce what that is. It, let's just say it's not much. But I can tell you this. When that tiny seed is invested in the soil, what it becomes is way out of proportion to where it begins. When it's invested in the soil, what it becomes is incredible. And Jesus is using this analogy to help us to understand the innate capacity of the gospel. 
It has exponential potential, the kingdom of God, which says to us what we've always believed, that good things come in little packages. When you think of the gospel story, Jesus didn't come and take the world by storm. In fact, his ministry lasted only three years at best. The man had no rank, no position, no means. He had a few friends. When he died on Friday, he had just a handful of women still supporting him. His life, his death did not make cable news, didn't make the headlines. But what began in Bethlehem as a tiny, not much seed in a backwater town has grown into a worldwide movement. From that one man, there were two billion, two billion people across the face of the earth that claim Jesus as Lord. And I confess to you that sometimes, even as a pastor, I get so anxious about results that I neglect process and practice. Or worse, we manipulate process. And when we do that, we make the mistake of disregarding and discounting the divine agency of God. In other words, we do God's work as though God doesn't exist. It's called functional atheism. The tale of the mustard seed is essentially about a big idea. It's about learning to trust divine agency. The capacity of the, the seed, that's what it's about. That once invested, nature's going to do her thing. Now, I know if you're like me, we've often said, if I just had more faith, I could make a, a measurable difference. But the truth is, you don't need more. We just need to use what we have. <laughs> Little things. It, it's, like, it's like muscle, you know. You don't get stronger by conserving your strength. You get stronger by exercising it. Jesus himself said, Matthew 20, verse 17, look, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you're going to move a mountain. This is not bigger is better. This is little is much when God is in it. William Blake, the British poet of another generation, said it like this, he or she who would do good to another must do so in minute particulars. We can deal with the big things. It's the little things. Jesus said in Luke 16, anybody who cannot be trusted in little things surely cannot be trusted in big stuff. And then he reverses his own words, but anyone who is untrustworthy in small potatoes will be untrustworthy in big potatoes. That's the revised chapel version. Jesus didn't say it like that, but you get the point. One of my favorite writers is Wendell Berry out of Henry County, Kentucky. If he lives to August the 5th, he'll be 90 years old. He once said, the devil's work is abstraction. It's not the love of material things, but the love of their quantities. I was reading 1 Samuel 24 this week, and that's what happened to King David. The scripture says his heart smote him, condemned him, because he numbered the people. And when people become numbers, it's going to get ugly. 
Our work as a church is not to make a religious establishment successful. It is to nurture disciples into maturity. It is to raise up disciples of Jesus for the transformation of the world. I've discovered that love is always concerned with the particular, not the general. Wesley himself in his conversion, it wasn't that his, he discerned that God loved the world, he knew that, but he discovered one day that God loved him. God loves you. And when it becomes particular, personal, life changes. Great symphonies are based on the same eight notes. Greg, you're not gonna get more notes on the piano, sorry. Choir, you're not gonna get more, the eight notes is what you got. Poetry, great literature, uses the same 26 letters that are in our alphabet, we're not gonna get more. So I suppose we need to use what we have. And then you will have more. Dr. Jamar Tisby was with us last Tuesday night what a marvelous night. This professor, preacher, he's a, a professor at uh, Simmons College in Kentucky. He's a beautiful, beautiful man, tremendous teacher. And we had about 600 people. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to count. Uh, I did count. We had over 600 people to join us. I mean, it was a multi-generational, uh, it was a diverse group, and it was one of the most joyful nights I mean, people were gathered, they weren't complaining about the church, you know, they were just, they were loving on each other, and we, we came together to talk about some difficult issues in our culture. And Dr. Tisby, I felt like the whole time he was talking to us, that he loved us, even though it was challenging. He shared a statistic with me, talking about measurements, that was very troubling to me. He said that the average white person may have 100 friends and acquaintances, and 91 of those 100 are typically white. And then he said the average black person has 100 friends, and 83 of them are black. And we talked about our need to build bridges rather than barriers, relationships, befriending one another. In fact, we have a race and faith team here in our church that's been meeting for several years. And let me tell you how it started. It started with a conversation at a kitchen table between one of our church members, a woman, and a person of color who was working for her, which led to a friendship, which led to a book study, which led to fellowship between this church and a black church. Jamar Tisby mentioned the fact that Jesus never invited anyone to the temple, but he invited a lot of people to the table. And when you get to the table, things change. And by the way, the people that Jesus invited to the table got him in a lot of trouble with the synagogue folk. But, but I was so taken by that Wednesday morning, the, the, the day after, I, I called two of my colleagues of color and set up a lunch date with them. Little is much when God is in it. 
and what it becomes is way out of proportion to where it starts. And I think Tony Evans was right. We need to measure our feet and not just our feelings. How do you measure? I'll tell you how I do. You go by the sunny day classroom on Tuesday and you see volunteers, some of you with Julie and Katie and you're ministering to people, elder people who, who are beginning to suffer from memory loss and you're just loving on them. That's how you measure a church. South, South Africa sponsorships, if you've been to those settlements where these children are living in 300 foot square feet, 10 tents, and 450 of them are being sponsored for Christian education by you, that's, that's the measure of a church. Healing housing where women are coming to recovery and getting back on their feet and reclaiming their children and family, that's a measure of a good church. Harvest hands where there's business opportunities and employment now for people who haven't been able to find work and children are learning to sew and make soap and, and being tutored. That's a measure of a good church. Little is much when God is in it, and I'm telling you, God is in it. One word. I've been reading a book called Refugia Faith. That's an interesting word. You recognize the root, don't you, of refugia. It's refuge. It's a book that's written by Deborah Reinstra, who teaches English at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That word refugia, it's actually an ecological term, and it has to do with habitats or environments that remain resilient in spite of disturbance. When Mount St. Helens erupted in May 1980, you all remember that? It lost 1,300 feet of elevation and gained a new mile wide and a half crater. It was incredible. The debris and ash fall from that volcanic blast devastated the mountain and its surroundings for miles, crushing, burning, killing, and coating everything in hot ash. Deborah tells this story. Everyone assumed that life could never return to that death zone, or at least couldn't return for a couple of centuries. But today, just 40 years later, the landscape is covered with lush prairie lupins and alders. Critters are scampering, streams are flowing. How did life come back with such vigor and so quickly? She writes, what the scientists know now but didn't know then is that when the mountain blasted ash and rock across the landscape, the devastation passed over some small places hidden in the lee of rocks and trees. And so here, a bed of moss and deer fern under the, a rotting log. There was a boulder under which a patch of pearly everlasting was in the tunnel to a vole's musty nest and these little pockets of safety, refugia, tiny coverts where plants and creatures hid from the destruction, hidden shelters where life persisted and out of which new life emerged, refugia. 
I don't have to tell you that we're living in an age of crisis eruption. And the future is uncertain. It's always uncertain. And we don't always know exactly what's coming, but we have learned ecologically and theologically that extreme disturbance can not only be survived, it may actually bring renewal. And this happens through refugia. And then she closes with this question. How can we, as people of faith, become people of refugia? How can we find and create refuge, not only in the biomes of the earth, but in our human cultural systems, in our churches, and in our souls? And she answers her own question, divine agency. God is our refugia. God calls us to look for the seed of life that is right where you are to protect and nurture little things and to let what is good and beautiful grow and connect and spread. But it demands a trust in God. Refugia, she concludes, are places to begin, places where the tender and harrowing work of reconstruction and renewal actually takes root. And there we must learn to surrender our illusions of full control. Because sometimes what seems impossible is actually the beginning place. Because divine aid is at work far beyond our ability to see and to imagine. And what we become will be way out of proportion to where we started. And the amazing thing is that all manner of creatures may actually find their nest in us. May it be so, in Jesus' name.